as soon as they walked up, one of the girls looked at the other one and went, remember, you're not supposed to say that they're scary. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, I'm Justin. I'm Mark. We're the J-Pops. And we are attempting parenting in Japan. Today, we've got our third ever J-Pops guest interview, and that guest is TV personality Bobby Judo. And we will chat with him about his experiences teaching his twin daughters baby sign language. We've also got a few updates of our own. Uh, First, Mark, how about uh, Moe? She's 32 weeks along. Is that right? That is right. Moe's 32 weeks this week. Uh, Last week, on her 31st week, she had her checkup. And as if things continue to go the way they are going then we're going to be headed down the C-section road as well. Hmm. Uh, the baby is, like I said before, flipped himself back right side up and just maintains that position, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Uh, she went in to have another moxibustion session last week, and that's the that's the acupuncture where they burn the incense by your feet and tries to get the baby to naturally flip on his own. And So she did that. And uh, she continues to do the downward dog exercises when she's home and hopes to get him to flip around. But so far, none of that is working. Hmm. Um, It'll be a shame to see the moxibustion industry fall apart if this baby doesn't flip. You know, <laughs> it's, it's teetering. Tail gets out there. <laughs> Once the news gets out that it doesn't work. Yeah. Yikes. <laughs> but... Um, I, what's the cutoff? Did they tell you a specific week in which they will make the decision? Because I feel like we were around 36 weeks. I think that's what Moe said. Yeah. Yeah. We've yeah. still got another couple of weeks. I think into March, we'll, we'll have a clearer picture of which way to go. Do you know off the top of your head uh, where the placenta is? Is the placenta at the top or at the bottom? Actually, I asked this last time and I don't think they mentioned it to Moe, and I don't think she asked about it. So I'm sure she'll listen to this and then think to ask about it next week. Uh, What they told us was that the placenta was up at the top and the baby's head was up at the top. And then Mm. as the baby continued to grow, this was just creating more crowding that made it harder for him to flip. And so that's how they could call it off at a certain point and say, like, sorry, this has to be a C-section now. This baby's getting too big and too locked into this position. So uh, as I recall, it was like, yeah, you've got another month or so. I think it was around Mm. week 36. That was the deadline for him. Yep. As far as I know, um, the placenta should always be at the top, right? I mean, if it's not at the top, I think they let you know. Like, that was my assumption anyway. Oh, yeah. They would bring it up if it were at the bottom. I think the placenta is one of those elements that can move around. um, And you need it to be at the top, but you also need the baby's feet to be at the top and head down. Right. yeah, we were in good shape on the placenta, and it turned out the the head was up there too, and then that just complicated matters. Gotcha. But the C-section went off without a hitch, um, no trouble at all, and uh, my wife's recovery has been pretty solid. Uh, she had like quite a strong painkiller all through her hospital stay, right. and they sent her out the door, I think, with a painkiller dosage, and that was pretty good. Hmm. Uh, and now um, we are eight days in. We've got an eight day yeah. old. And yeah, uh, how's that going? Yeah, it's good. Um, it also means on the topic of the C-section, it means my wife had the big operation eight days ago and um, she walks around. She, you know, gets up off the floor. She is mobile. She handles the baby and everything. So it all seems to be fine. I think okay. she said 
she can sense that there's, uh, you know, that her body's not in tip top condition, that she's, you know, still a bit delicate, like, uh, on her lower tummy where the C-section was performed, but it's not like hampering her and she's not in round the clock pain either. So that's positive. My assumption about this would be that, you know, she couldn't do a lot of things that require like core strength because obviously that might tear stitches or whatever, but it sounds like that's not really an issue, is it? I think this late into the process, like uh, we're on day eight now, so she's had enough time to heal that she's okay. gaining back a lot of mobility and functionality. And Man, that's I think, fast. Yeah, well, sometimes she'll, you know, in Japan, a lot of things happen on the floor. You may sleep on a mattress on the floor or you sit mm. on the floor for dinner or something. So there's a lot of getting up off the floor, which is you know, kind of a stress on the body. So she'll like try to get up and then readjust herself a bit and then finally stand up uh, rather than just popping up off the floor without any trouble. So she's moving a bit gingerly. No burpees. Yeah, no burpees. She's put burpees on hold. (laughs) Maybe next week she'll pick up burpees again. Who knows? That's good. As for now, the baby's taking over the burpees. Am I right? Huh? (laughs) Who's with me? (laughs) High five. High five, everyone. Okay. Uh, (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so the baby, that's the big news. Um, right. We're settled into the new routine. That's the main thing. Um, I guess it was on day six we brought the baby home. Now it's day eight, so we've had him for about 48 hours in mm-hmm. my wife's parents' house. And uh, it's just about locking yourself into the new routine and then that becoming and totally replacing whatever your previous routine was. Right. By necessity for the dad, it, you know, turns on like a light switch. It's like you were doing whatever you were doing three days ago, and now you're doing something totally different. I guess the mother has a bit more of an event and a bit more of a hospital stay, and she adjusts to the the new way over the course of a week or so. It's, I mean, it's even a bigger transition for the mother, I'm sure. But um, yeah, from our perspective, you just kind of go from lounging around the house to being on a tight, tight schedule. Yeah, and, uh, sounds like it. Yeah, I think the um, the main thing is that the baby needs milk every three to four hours. And mm. so then your whole life revolves around that three-hour cycle. Uh, the best way in our experience, in our broad, vast experience, <laughs> the best way is you wake the baby up uh, with a diaper change because he's oh. probably dirty to You diaper. just assume it's ready. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You just go ahead and, and jump in there. We've got diapers that change color on the outside when they're wet. So oh, nice. You can see even which portion of the diaper has been sullied. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's usually, I mean, he's usually blasting a number one and a number two. He's on a liquid diet, so everything just right. runs through him. And uh, I guess we'll need to change the diaper minimum eight times a day. Uh, hmm. but maybe up to 10, 12 times a day, because sometimes of course you change it and then you hear this like horrible gurgling sound from the baby. <laughs> you're like, well, back on the table for you, boy, that diapers half-life was about four minutes or something. Um, so yeah, you'll do a lot of back-to-back changing, but you rouse the baby from sleep or sometimes he'll wake up himself, but sometimes he's in a sleep, but you know, okay, it's feeding time. So right. you get him up, change his diaper and that gets him going a little bit. Then once he's awake, he's immediately hungry. And our situation is that we'll, uh, my wife will take him for breastfeeding and then I'll prepare a formula bottle. So he's used to the bottle and he's used to breastfeeding sort of at the same time. 
Mm-hmm. And he's getting the benefits of the breastfeeding, getting the benefits of the formula, you know, rather than doing one or the other exclusively. That's kind of yeah. our tack right now. So also, I think it's just good to have them used to a bottle in case something were to occur where my wife would have to be away for, say, a day or something or half a day or whatever. Then it's not yeah. too big of a, an adjustment on the kid or on the dad to suddenly learn how to put the bottles together, or whatever. We've got that pattern kind of established already. That's so um, while my wife's breastfeeding, I'll prepare a bottle. I'll clean things up uh, like from previous rounds of bottle feedings and stuff, do a few baby dishes And then I'll usually go in and feed him with the bottle. And by that time, he's like half the time he's zoned out. The other half of the time he's looking around. But, you know, he's only a few days old, so he's not really he's not like a chatterbox and he's not registering. And yeah, and he he never seems bored. He never seems fussy. He just he's a machine right now. He's just an eating. So he's not like a super crying baby like. No, he's some not. kids I know are kind of whiny and like they'll just like start crying at the drop of a dime. I think, and this is just speculation on my part, but I think that that factors in when the kid gets used to more like, oh, if I cry, I get attention, or if I cry, I get some entertainment or something like that. You know, within mm. just a few weeks or months, I'm sure that they make those connections. But right now, he's an absolute machine. It's just if he's crying, gotcha. there's one of maybe three reasons that he's crying and it's food. It's that he needs a diaper change or it's that something's really uncomfortable. Like mm. if he's uh, if you put him in the bath and the bath water is, you know, slightly a degree too cold for him, he does not like that and he'll go wild. So <laughs> if the bath water is fine for him, he's absolutely chill. And nice. every time there's like an identifiable problem to solve. Nice. That's the, uh, that's this phase of life anyway for these first few days. But yeah, you'll need to keep on that more or less three hour cycle. So night one, you know, we went through the routine at 8 p.m., then at 11 p.m., then 2 a.m., then 5 a.m. And uh, it, it's just you have to be up and down all the time. And right. then what you try to do, I think, is have it to where the the dad can take over one cycle all by himself so that the mom can theoretically get about six hours of sleep in a row. And then the mom takes over a cycle by herself so that the dad can get about six hours of sleep in a row. And if all of that goes without a hitch, then you've managed to get six hours of sleep. Other than that, you're just trying to catch naps and stuff. You're not on that cycle yet, right? Um, We gave it a shot last night. We've only had two nights, so two goes at it. And the first night, like also the first couple of rounds, everything's training for the dad because the mom's got her hospital experience with the midwives. So she knows how to do all this at a professional mother level. And then the dad's just kind of coming in cold. Um, So Hmm. I think it's important that the dad sticks with the mom for everything at the beginning. Like, you know, watch the bathing once. And then the second time you do the bathing, watch the diaper changing once. And then from that point forward, you do the diaper changing, you know, you sort of like have to get in there as soon as you can on the stuff. So we definitely both woke up for everything and um, it makes for, I mean, this is just day one. So I'm sure that there are parents with years of experience who are laughing at me, but after day one, you feel exhausted. (laughs) You're just like, I got basically no sleep. And uh, you look at these, you know, if it's on a three hour cycle and it takes about an hour to get everything done between the changing and the feeding and getting them back to Mm. sleep, then you get this two hour chunk of time to do what you need to do before it starts again. So you, you know, frantically think like, I need to eat, I need to get in a shower, I need to reply to somebody's email and okay, and we're back into 
the <laughs> feeding and changing cycle again. So okay. yesterday I had a, uh, you know, we went through one and then it was like, you start the stopwatch and I got in the car and I had to run some errands and just drive around town. And I was like, okay, I can stay here for three minutes. Now I got to get out. I got to go to the next <laughs> thing. And you just have to blast all that stuff out because you got to be there for the next run through. I guess I'm making it sound more dramatic than it is because, you know, one parent or the other or the grandparents in our case could handle things themselves. Yeah. I was going to ask about them, like how that's going, how are they helping you guys? Yeah, I think for now, um, it's, we've only been here for about 48 hours. So it's mostly mm. been my mother-in-law making meals and she's always mm. got some snacks ready to go. She's always got lunch and dinner, especially prepared. And, uh, that's worked out really well. Uh, as for day one and two, it's been more about training me. But then just today we started like showing the grandmother like what we do for diaper changing. So now she's mm. trained up on diaper changing. And then we'll get them to prepare a bottle maybe today or tomorrow. And the plan is this weekend, Yumi and I both need to leave the house to go to the city office to process some paperwork. With the baby? Uh, no, baby can stay back. Uh, for this. So we oh. just need to get the grandparents generation like sort of in on all the schedule and all the, you know, everything's down to the milliliter and down to the right. hour. And uh, especially because the baby can't tell you, I need 40 milliliters of milk instead of 60 <laughs> or, you know, that at that level, but right. the baby will need a sort of specific amount. And mm. uh, based on the, how many days or weeks old the baby is. So we just, it's not like that, uh, no snacks after 8 p.m. and turn the TV off at 8.30 and then read it. It's not like this, you know, that sort of thing. But I feel like it's more, this baby is totally non-communicative, so we need to stick by what the hospital told us to stick by. Otherwise, we're going to malnourish him or we're going to overfeed him or, you know, something haywire. Yeah, that makes happen. sense. Uh, that might be half paranoid, but I feel like it's kind of necessary to keep on the schedule they gave us. Hmm. But anyway, yeah, we've got the the grandparents like in the know as of today, maybe a bit more. And then I think from tomorrow, they will be cool to take over some cycles, too. Nice. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's all going pretty smoothly. Yeah, sounds like it. Oh, and one more thing I want to add. This is just a crazy thing, but I'm at the in-laws house right now and I'm coming to you from the piano room. Oh, my father-in-law is a piano tuner. And mm. he's got a room where he can sort of get old pianos and repair them and sell them and whatnot. So I'm sitting in his piano room, which has six pianos. And <laughs> so I see two baby grands. I see four uprights all around me. I'm sitting on a piano stool. My desk is a piano stool. And I've got a third piano stool holding my coffee and my cell phone. And um, I know there's a couple of oboes in here. I see a French horn back on the shelf over there. So. Wow, this this room sounds kind of massive. Like this isn't like a normal six tatami. <laughs> You're sitting. This in. is not a six tatami, <laughs> but it's not as big as you would think because baby grands can two of them can kind of fit together like puzzle pieces, and then uprights to be sold. You don't have to sit there and play them, so you can just line them up. Uh, um, so yeah, it's uh, what would I say here? Give me maybe a twelve, maybe fourteen tatami down here. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah, so that's my that's my office for the time being. The old nice. piano room. Thank you for finding time to do this in the midst of all that chaos. Yeah, for sure. This is one of my two-hour windows, one of my two-hour breaks, sit down to do the old podcast. Yeah. We got a tight clock for this one today. 
Yeah. Without further ado, we should get into the Bobby Judo interview. You especially had a keen interest in baby sign language, right? I do. Yeah. I know nobody who's done it before, but I keep reading about it and it just seems like something that is just obviously good to do with your kid. Like get them communicating as early as you can, however they're able to, and you just kind of help along the way. And then as they pick other stuff up, it just makes sense. So I wanted, I really wanted to talk to somebody and Bobby Judo was kind enough to, uh, to talk to us about it, having done it himself. Yeah, we heard through the grapevine that Bobby Judo had twin daughters and that he had done baby sign language with both of them. And we thought, who better to talk to than somebody with so much experience yeah, and such a rich podcasting history. He's a real pro uh, from all yeah. angles coming in here. So we should say that we recorded this a week ago, uh, but then we wanted to do a new baby spectacular extravaganza episode. So we shelved this interview and uh, we're putting it out now. So when we talked to Bobby Judo, I had a one-day-old baby at that time, and we discussed that a bit in the interview. Uh, but we get right past it and get into the baby sign language talk, which is very interesting. So let's get into it. Let's hear what old Mr. Bobby Judo has to say. Our guest today is longtime resident of Japan, living in Fukuoka for over 15 years. He's a former Jet who went on to become a successful J-vlogger and then a full-time TV personality, otherwise known as a talento. He also co-hosts a Japan-based podcast called Japan by River Cruise, where he and his co-host, Ollie Horn, poke fun at news in Japan, but take river cruising very seriously. But more important than all of that is that he's a father of twin daughters here in Japan whom he taught baby sign language to, which is what we really want to talk to him about. So, Bobby Judo, welcome to the show. Hello, thank you for having me. It's nice to meet you guys. Yeah, nice to meet you too. Likewise. Uh, do you want to tell us uh, a little bit more about that maybe we didn't cover in the intro there and kind of what you do here in Japan? Uh, that was pretty comprehensive. Um, I came <laughs> over as a jet like most of us did uh, in 2006. I'm on my 16th year here. I started in Saga Prefecture down in Kyushu and uh, got some popular videos on YouTube that led into a local TV career uh, that led into a regional TV career. And then pre-corona, I had some, some national uh, irons in the fire that all just vanished. So, uh, so I've, I've gone back into podcasting. I threw up a couple of YouTube videos here and there. Um, but I still, I, I earn my living uh, TV, radio, and events here locally. Um, Japan by River Cruise is my creative and comedic outlet that, that as you mentioned, I do with my friend Ali Horn. And um, my girls are six. I've got six-year-old twins. Um, oh, okay. So I'm a little bit further along. You guys, when are your, when are your kids going to be born? Your wives are both expecting, correct? Well, mine is still expecting, but... Yeah, we should have told you just before, but I have a one-day-old baby right now. Congratulations! <laughs> yeah, thank you wow. very much. Uh, so we just recorded um, another episode, which is the, you know, the baby has dropped episode day one. Uh, it's, yeah, big news. It's huge. Big change. Uh, you, you should probably um, throw in a disclaimer about, like, the Japanese system. I'm assuming your wife is still in the hospital. Yeah, so I have yet to make physical contact with the baby, but allegedly there's a baby out there, <laughs> and um, I've uh, I've gotten a lot of pictures, done a lot of FaceTiming, and I did see the baby for about two minutes in an incubator. Mm. Uh, that was all that the corona restrictions would allow. 
Yeah, there's there's a corona restriction element and then there's also a Japan cultural element where it's it's normal for the the wife to stay in the hospital for an extended period with the baby. Mm. Um so just so the listeners know, you're not like you haven't just had a baby and you've gone off to do a podcast like this. is yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're required to, yeah. to not be in the hospital. Yeah. This is my required me time. Um, she, <laughs> I think she gets released. Uh, the birth was day zero. It's day one now. And then day six, I go to pick them up. So okay. I'm kind of uh, on like I'm in a holding pattern. It's like vacation time for me over here. It's wild. And mm. how much sign language does the baby know currently? The baby has gained use of his hands as of today. So, we're but no signs. To start. No, uh, no signs right. yet. I no hate to tell you, yet. you're way behind. You're way oh, behind no. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, yeah. So, that'll be day two. Day two. We'll get <laughs> start them early. It's, uh, it's interesting to me. I've had friends in the past who have done it. And, um, you know, in those days, I wasn't a dad. I wasn't even thinking about being a dad. So I thought it seemed a little bit to me like a kind of superfluous or even kind of just an out there thing that uh-huh. a parent might try. But since then, you know, it's, as it's become a reality for me, I've looked into it a lot more, watched videos and read about it. And it seems to be quite valuable. And I hear mm-hmm. about more and more people who have done it. So um, we thought we'd have a real sign language pro on uh, with you and the experience with your kids. So um, could you... Uh, I guess, tell us about the beginnings of it. Mm. Um, how did you get into it? Well, I think my my first exposure to baby signing uh, it was probably the same as yours. My cousin uh, used it in her family. And so I saw someone else who had a very young child that they were using sign language with. And I do remember being kind of like taken aback, going like, this is, I don't know how much of a necessary thing that this is. But I uh, quickly kind of realized that um, when when your children are still very, very young, when they're when they're babies and toddlers, they don't develop their linguistic abilities very quickly, but they still have a need to communicate. And so for us, when when we had our girls, it wasn't so much about, you know, an education or um, or cognitive uh, learning or anything like that. It, it wasn't about something that we wanted to teach them so much as even though they're babies, they still have lots and lots of feelings and lots of things that they want to communicate and they can't communicate it verbally. They just can't. And so a lot of times, you know, that you, you hear parents say that, you know, you learn to tell what your baby needs when it cries based on the different ways that it cries. This cry means I need to be changed. This cry means I'm hungry. This cry means I'm sleepy. You do that because that's the only way your baby can tell you that it needs those things. Hmm. Baby signing is another way for them to communicate what they want and what they need. And when they have that tool, there's a lot less crying. Um, and I know children and babies can't really regulate their emotions, but it seems like a way to kind of like have an outlet to deal with your emotions. And that mm. was, uh, that was the number one reason that we wanted to, to use it with our girls. When did you start actually doing it with them? So we inherited a set of baby sign cards from my cousin. And I think we started using them almost immediately as soon as you're in a situation where you're communicating with your your children Mm. where where i just mean like you're talking to them you know they don't get it they don't know it but when there's a baby around and you're interacting with it it was very very natural for us to speak to the the babies as we were interacting so are you ready for milk or we're going to change you or it's time Mm. for bed and things like that and we had very simple picture books and very simple uh, flashcards that would have an illustration or a picture of whatever the action, whatever the object was, um, and and the sign that went along with it. So you could do it like story time at bedtime, you know, when you have a, a 
very simple picture books for kids where it's, you know, a picture <laughs> of an animal and then the name of the animal and you hold up the picture and you go dog and then you make the noise sure. that a dog makes. It's exactly the same way you would do that. You just okay. hold up the picture that has, you know, the bottle and you do the gesture for bottle. And then in your daily life, when you're interacting with them, you try to be conscious of as you're saying, you know, it's time for a bottle, it's time for a nap, you do those gestures. And my girls really, really quickly, I think from the time that they were maybe one and a half or even younger, hmm. uh, the first one they glommed onto was more, which was, <laughs> uh, which was just kind of like tapping okay. your two hands together with all your fingers kind of touching. And that means more or again. And uh, anytime hmm. they were playing, anytime they were eating, anytime they wanted to drink more, to eat more, just having that vocabulary that they could do to communicate that. Uh, hmm. I think got them started really, really early on uh, being good at being able to express themselves. And that sign in particular, and I guess all of the signs, um, are those directly taken from American Sign Language or Japanese Sign Language? Or did you sort of uh, generate them as you went along based on what the child was comfortable with? Uh, so all the ones that we used were from a system that I think is based on this baby sign flashcard system and a baby sign books. And I, I don't, I mean, it's six years ago now, so I don't remember exactly, but I feel pretty confident that there was a disclaimer on the book that said, this is not American sign language. Hmm. Mm, okay. Um, we, we would use those. And I think there were only one or two maybe gestures that, that grew out of our own interactions that maybe the girls didn't learn one the right way that they did in the book, but they picked up something that was close to it and that evolved into the sign that we ended up using. And then there was some other gesture that they made for a game that they really liked that uh, I don't even remember what the gesture was now, but it was when they were babies, there was there was a certain game that they really liked to play, that they would do a gesture uh, to hmm. let us know that that was the game that they wanted to play. So they were even then developing their own gestures before they were even like speaking it. Oh, yeah, yeah. And and wow. kids kids will do that. I mean, they'll figure out ways to get your attention. They'll figure out sure. ways to to tell you what they need. And this was just kind of like, I don't know. I, I I remember having real clear moments of realization that that it was like these little creatures are kind of figuring out what communication is, and mm -hmm. and understanding. I think when they started when they first started speaking, they would feel very free to kind of like experiment with language. And I think because we had a bilingual atmosphere in the house where they understood that these are words that daddy uses to talk about something. And these are words that mommy uses to talk about the same thing, but they're different. Hmm. So if daddy can have his own words and mommy can have her own words, then why don't we try making our own words? Interesting. And it was, uh, I think one of the earliest memories I have of that is when they were three or three two or three, they had a little toy stuffed animal bunny. And one of my daughters brought it over to me and she kind of held it up and she went, daddy, say Usagi. And I went, <laughs> bunny. And she went, mm, say Usagi. <laughs> I said, bunny. And she went, mm, say Usagi. And I kind of went, ah, and I said, Usagi. And she, I swear to God, my own daughter, my own flesh and blood looked me dead in the eye and went, Jules and walked away. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Then she was uh, commenting on your chopstick use at dinner. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. All the classics. Uh, um, 
Wow. So the signs that you use, uh, of course, the kids associate the physical gesture with whatever the, you know, the content is, whatever, if it's more, which in English you might refer to, or in Japanese, your wife might refer to. So they're using signs fluently sort of back and forth between the two languages, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, so the gestures are, are kind of communicative tools that transcend either Japanese or English. And, mm-hmm. um, they picked up, they picked up, uh, I, it wasn't a whole lot. I want to say maybe at max 20, um, but things like mm. eat, drink, sleep, play, more, um, car. I think like, when it was time to get in the car, things like that. And it wasn't a whole mm. lot, but it was just enough that they were able to kind of get through their daily um, needs to, to address all of their daily needs. And the flashcards, I think they were like 50 some flashcards and some of them were like uh, cracker. And hmm. and like the like some of the gestures were really confusing, and it was like you know strike your open palm with your fist and then rotate your elbow as if you're grinding wheat <laughs> to make crackers. And it was like oh hmm. right that old familiar gesture that we all know, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> the weed grinding for crackers gesture. That that seems a bit excessive. A lot of the books I've been finding say like twelve to twenty is like yeah, the yeah. optimal sign amount that you should be teaching. Well, I think that's really all you need. And um, they they still remember them. Like we have a lot of videos and pictures from when they were young and they can rewatch those and they can recognize that, you know, I was doing this because I wanted something. Mm. But they don't use them at all anymore. They've completely discarded them because they don't need them, but they still remember what they were. So now at six, like the verbal language has totally taken over and... God, they never shut up. Man. <laughs> they never stop talking. You you were saying before, like you're you're primarily an English speaker in the house, and your wife is Japanese. Yeah. Do yeah. they do they prefer one or the other? So we wanted to create as much of an English environment as possible in the house, and okay. so I think until they started preschool, my wife uh, my wife speaks English uh, moderately well. She lived in Canada for a couple of years and and always was interested in studying English, and mm. um, and she can she can have a conversation. Her her nice. grammar is far from perfect. Her vocabulary is a little bit limited, but she can she can get by in English. And so mm. I think when when until the girls were three or four, uh, it was about eighty percent English in the house. I was a hundred percent. My wife tried for eighty ninety percent, and I mm. think. In reality, I mean, when you're interacting and you, you need to communicate quickly, you rely on your native language in stressful right. times. So instead of for a Japanese person, instead of saying stop or danger or something like that, you just go Abba night. Um, right. So those the, the native language comes out. And once the girls started preschool, which is just a Japanese preschool, um, they started using more Japanese and they kind of identified when we talk to, to mom, we want to use more Japanese. When we talk to dad, we want to use more English. And mm-hmm. they'll also select out based on whatever they're playing at the time. So if they're pretending to be Barbie, they'll speak in English. Uh, hmm. if, they're, if they're pretending to be ninjas, they'll speak in Japanese. <laughs> and before they started preschool, it was really funny. Because they they had so much exposure to English and I spent so much time doing creative play with them and reading to them that they had a really uh, wide range of expressions available to them when they were playing in English. So if they're pretending to be Anna and Elsa, it was like, we've got to put Prince Hans in the dungeon and we've got to uh, Hmm. 
we've got to get away to the forest and we've got to restore the magic for the people of Arendelle. And they had all these these expressions. And then when they would pretend to be ninjas, they would just run around going, Yatskido, which is just like, <laughs> let's get them, let's get them. And they didn't have the Japanese vocabulary right. for that. And now it's now it's evened out. I'd say it might even be a little bit heavier on the, the Japanese side. Still, I think through through media exposure and uh, stuff like that, they pick up a lot of native speaker uh, mannerisms and expressions. Hmm. And to, um, I guess, get the language ball rolling in the house, you know, you've got a bilingual household. When you approached that in the beginning, did you set rules or did you just kind of take it as it came? And then if you did have any rules about it, how quickly do those fall away in the face of sort of the day-to-day stresses and, you know, just navigating yeah. life? So we did set rules and they fell away slowly. Uh, <laughs> they didn't go away right away. The, the rules that we set were as much English as possible in the house. If you're, We, we don't watch a lot of TV. And don't like just let our kids kind of like sit with YouTube or anything like that. But the media that we did consume, kind of like the the kids shows, uh, like the educational shows, and even like the straight entertainment media, like your Disney and your cartoons and things like that. Uh, our initial rule was English only, and that's just because I mean, as as English speakers living in Japan, if you don't do everything you can to supplement the percentage of English that you get, you you get a very right. small amount. I work, uh, I'm, I'm lucky enough that I have an irregular schedule so I can spend, you know, full days with my kids, even when it's not a weekend, I'm, I can usually be, uh, home to see them off to school. I'm usually Mm -hmm. home by the time that, uh, they get back from preschool. So I think they get a lot more exposure to their father and their father speaking English than if I were to have a regular nine to five job. Right. But at the same time, that's still, that's still a drop in the bucket compared to, the total of all the exposure to language that they get in their day-to-day life. So yeah. a lot of reading, a lot of extra books, and then any media that they consume, uh, even music, it was just kind of like, we want to keep it 100% English. And that fell apart, not because of stress, but because we realized it was kind of going to make them, it was going to set them further apart at their school and with their peers. Because when all the other kids are, you know, playing Purikua or uh, Kimetsu no Yaiba and they haven't been exposed to it, then it makes it harder for them to fit in with their peer group. And so we kind of relax that if they if they want to find some show on Netflix that their friends are watching and watch it and like they watch Pokemon whenever they watch Pokemon, they watch it in Japanese. Hmm. Interesting. In terms of, uh, like you said, you know, books and uh, sort of things to expose them to language in that way. They, they may still be a bit young for this, but have you thought about doing anything like a, you know, supplementary textbook kind of thing or worksheets or something a bit with more of an educational feel, or is it still down to just what they enjoy uh, of its own accord? I'm lucky in that they still, in, they, they enjoy studying and they enjoy doing worksheets and things like that. Uh, and so mm-hmm. we did pick up, I think one trip back to the States, we picked up kind of like a basic reading workbook that had like three sections where it went through phonics and then you know you practice your writing your alphabet and reading simple sentences like like see spot run like that kind of level and they finished Mm -hmm. that and they were very proud that they finished that and they kind of got stickers each time they did a page and finished a unit and and would ask to uh would ask to like spend some time doing it that day to collect stickers and then we found when they finished that one we found another kind of like reading workshop um spiral bound notebook at Costco. 
and we we got them each a copy of that and when they feel like it they work on it so they can they can write their alphabet they can read very rudimentary words and and they can write letters and things like that and they like i don't know if this is because we put such an effort into fostering their communication skills when they were young but they love to communicate and if that means writing a letter to a friend if that means writing a letter to to grandma or uh just writing like a little note on a piece of paper and slipping it under my door while i'm in my office doing work or something like that they do that all the time oh that's really cool there are some some good um kind of reading lesson workbooks that you can find uh, on Costco or online. I have definitely gone through the Costco book section a lot. Yeah. (laughs) Hmm. It's encouraging to know that they took to it in that way and uh, that they would do it sort of like they'll be intrinsically motivated to tackle that sort of thing. I remember doing that myself as a kid, but Mm. I thought maybe I was just a real nerd. But I guess, you know, like every kid (laughs) is into it to some degree just to complete it. And as you say, get the stickers and so on. Well, there's two there's two uh, aspects that I kind of um, am very conscious of in terms of their language learning, and one is the phenomenon that if you're mixed race in Japan, when you hit a certain age, usually puberty or pre-puberty, you start to want to be seen more as Japanese and identify less with your foreign half. You guys, I don't know if you mm-hmm. have any half friends or half students, um, but it's something that I've I've seen an awful lot and heard heard from from. Uh, my adult friends who are mixed race, that hmm. everybody goes through this this phase where you want to fit in. And so right. you might be a little embarrassed that one of your parents is a foreigner and isn't like all the other moms and dads. Or, you know, when the English lesson starts and all the kids go, you know the answers, you know the answers, you feel shy hmm. or embarrassed and you want right. to distance yourself from that. And so I'm doing everything that I can to get the English in now while they're still young enough to to want to communicate with me and want to make me happy by being able to read English books together or, or watch an English show together. Yeah. This was kind of something I was interested in too. Like your daughters are getting older now, so Mm. they have more like self-awareness. Do they understand as far as you, you know, that they're considered half here maybe, or are perceived differently from their peers? Yeah. We've got a little bit of a special case because not only are they uh, mixed race, but they're twins and I'm on TV. And so right. so I used to do a joke when I did stand up about this, that it was the idea that's like my girls are mixed race, they're twins and they're, they're these cute little girls. And so it's incredibly frustrating when you take them out around town and people will stop you and they'll go, oh, they're so cute. Oh, they're so kawaii. Oh, they're mm-hmm. so pretty. And it's like, guys. I am also very attractive. <laughs> let, me, let me get a little bit of that attention. But right. please. But so they figured out, I think they had to confront a lot of things that other kids mm-hmm. don't don't confront. And that at some of it, they just kind of, for a long time, took it as normal that whenever we went somewhere, people would stop and go, oh, I know you, um, or ask for a mm-hmm. picture or things like that. And it it wasn't until maybe they were four or five that, they were like, why did why do people you don't know know you? Or how come, you know, when you talk to somebody oh. and, and then they walk away and we go, who was that? You go, I don't know. Isn't that weird? Right. And it took them a while to figure that out. And the other thing that really perplexed them is they're fraternal twins. So people will come hmm. up and they'll look at them and they'll go, are they twins? And you'll go, yeah. And they'll go, but their faces are different. And they'll kind of like 
for a long time, they didn't understand why they were like, everybody has a different face. So why is it weird? <laughs> why do people react like that, that our faces are different? Right. Mm -hmm. But they have definitely picked up on that, the idea that, especially when they're out in public and they're speaking English to each other, or like when they go to play at a park, they like to play just one-on-one. -on -one. And so they'll run around and whatever they're, they're playing in their make-believe world, they'll be doing it in English. And it'll hmm. get the attention of the other kids at the park who will go like, are, are those girls foreigners? Are they Japanese? What are they? What are they doing? Let's pay right. attention to them for a little while and kind of like follow them around. And, and hmm. so they have noticed that and they do not like it. Hmm. I think there was one, one time we were on the way home from the park and they were like, you know, when, when we start to hear people going, like, let's try to avoid hmm. those people. And I had to kind of go like, well, they're, they're curious. They're just interested in you. They're not trying to, they're not trying to pick on you or anything like that. But at the same time, I know exactly how you feel. Yeah. Right. Speaking of that, uh, I'm interested in that word half. And um, mm. it's, I think it's been known, you know, I've known some people to take it pejoratively and then some mm. people to be fully comfortable with it. And I was wondering about your opinion on that, or if you have experience one way or the other encountering it in maybe a less than positive way. I, I have 10 minutes of uh, stand-up bits about this. <laughs> um, but the the long and short of it is, it's not so much an issue of what you call it, because there was this whole movement, I think, when I first arrived in Japan, that was like, we should not say half, we should say double. Um, mm, I remember that. And then it was like, well, double isn't really solving the problem. You can call it mixed race. You could, mm. And there, there was the whole debate was, well, what should we try to call it in Japanese? And my opinion is like, why, why do you need to call it something? Like whatever mm. you're calling it, it still serves the function to go, they're different than us. I think most of the mixed race people I know in Japan, I'd say they fall into two categories. They're people who learn to let it roll off their back. And, mm. and it's just like, okay, that's what it is. That's the word that they use. People don't mean it negatively. Um, I'm not going to let it get to me. And then the other, the other half, I think, are people who who did feel very mistreated in Japan or very much like an outsider in Japan. And I know a lot of people who kind of grew up half and are, are still adults and very sensitive about it. And a lot of them choose to leave. A lot of them, if they have the opportunity and the means, they go, well, Japan has never really accepted me, so I'm going to go somewhere more multicultural. Yeah. Is this, would this be something that you and your family would consider, like maybe going back to U.S.? If your daughters were like, I just can't take this anymore. Uh, yeah, if, if it got to that point where it was better for their mental health, I have a mm. hard time imagining it being better for anybody's mental health to be in the U.S. right now. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, but if yeah. it got to a point where that's the main reason, my, my daughters are the sole reason that I haven't more seriously pursued giving up my U U.S. citizenship because I don't, <laughs> I mean, with climate change, with the political landscape, um, with the economic mm. concerns and, and also, uh, just for their well being, you know, if they want to go to, uh, a Western high school, if they want to go mm. to an American university, I don't want to limit my ability to go back to the States or limit our family's ability. It's, it would be hard enough trying to get my wife uh, a green card, let alone, oh, for sure. uh, our kids having to, to bring their parents over like they were anchor babies or whatever, or whatever the, the Republicans mm. call them. <laughs> yeah in 
uh, in general, you know, especially given, say, the course of the last five years, it's just easier to be an immigrant here than it is to be an immigrant there. Yeah, and yeah. when you're in a or when you're in a relationship with people with different citizenships, you have to make that choice: who's going to be the immigrant? Yeah. And um, it, Japan, you know, for want of population with the falling birth rate, it seems like every year it just you know they lighten the load a little bit on uh, you know what it takes to stay here and maintain your status. Yeah. And the U.S. is sort of on the opposite trajectory. So, yeah, I totally understand that. And also, just mm. in terms of work concerns, like I, I've been working in Japanese for so long that it's not, it's, it's not, uh, very challenging for me to find work here. Whereas if my wife were to come to the States with her English ability and her, her professional, uh, resume, I think she'd be very limited in the kind of jobs that she'd be able to do over there. Hmm. To cap it off. I've also thought about this before that, um, you have to walk out of the healthcare system that's available in Japan and then step into the healthcare system in the United States. And that's a big ask. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then a, a similar issue is you have to step out of the relative safety out on the street day to day, just the safety, yeah. that atmosphere. And you have to step into the equivalent in America. And yeah. that's another yeah. big ask. It's, it's difficult in many ways. Whenever I talk about kind of the, the what, what they call in Japanese, chian, chian no yosa, chian is the safety or security of the, of the country. Um, mm -hmm. Whenever I talk about that with Japanese people, they automatically assume that I'm talking about gun violence. And, mm -hmm. and having been out of America for so long, I do look, look back on kind of the gun violence that's taken as unavoidable or you know, part of the culture and kind mm -hmm. of go, I can't believe that, that people are not doing more to fix this but it's not just that it's it's uh the opioid epidemic as well um i'm i'm from south florida and i think i had four out of five uh no four or five out of ten of my friends growing up ended up mixed up or addicted to drugs uh and so it's crazy yeah it, it's it's crazy in in a society where that just doesn't happen right if, if it happens it's so rare that it makes national news I wanted to um, maybe take one step back to the the half topic again um, before we leave it totally. And uh, it's interesting to me that we're talking about how sort of, you know, why do you need a label? Uh, why can't it just be that we're all here? And I've had, I've had the thought before that it's like, yeah, half of my parents are Western, half of my parents are Japanese, but half of your parents are Japanese and half of your parents are Japanese. So we're yeah. all half yeah, yeah, yeah. in our own yeah. way. We all come from two sources. And um, but then there's also something to be said for the fact that as a half, there are just things that are fundamentally different in terms of you're fluent in two languages and um, you might look a bit different than your classmates and things of this nature. And yeah. so it seems to be one of those things that's almost inescapable because there are like sort of tangible qualities that are going to be different between the people. And then mm. it's just a matter of hoping that I guess your kid is in an environment where everybody's comfortable with those differences and not focusing on them in a negative way. Right. Um, our mutual friend Casey said that um, it's in the back of his mind sometimes that, you know, oh, what if my kids come home someday and somebody's been bullying them for being half, uh, but it just simply hasn't happened because they've been in the same community growing up with the same kids all the time. And it seems yeah. very natural. Yeah. So I was wondering if you've had sort of that similar experience that when they're all kids and they're all, you know, growing up together that they just don't even notice? Uh, and has it been like that light of a load? Yeah, that's that's a question that actually I've been I've been thinking about recently because um, so we're not in Tokyo. We're not in 
in you know a city where you walk down the street and every third person is a foreigner. But we're also not in Ishikawa. Um, we're in Fukuoka. And so they've got a handful of other mixed race kids in their preschool. So they've got a kid in their preschool who's half Israeli. They've got um, a girl who's uh, 100% Chinese. And they've got uh, a couple of mixed race friends. And there's a, a big international um, like playdate circle that pre-corona we would hmm. go to events with them. So they they understand that they're not alone in being mixed race here in Japan. But we're moving, we're right in the middle of a move to Karatsu, where I think their first grade class when they start elementary school, uh, I think is a total, the entire first grade is 17 kids. And wow. I think there are only in the town that we're going to be in, there are only, I think there's a guy from Brazil and uh, maybe one other American and no children. So hmm. they, they are going to be uh, moving into a new community and a new environment that is that countryside where there's not going to be any other foreigners around. So right. I, I don't know what it's going to be like. I, I think it won't be that heavy of a load. I don't think they'll face bullying. I think part of that is, again, due to the fact that my profile is very high in this area. And, and so like when I go to their preschool now, um, I'm on a, on a morning show here where like they recognize me from the morning show that they saw before they came to preschool. And I've been on TV in the area that we're moving to for more than a decade now. So hmm. I think, um, if I'm not the stranger and the outsider to their parents and the people who work at the school, then that might not rub off on like the whole stranger and outsider foreigner effect might not rub off on my children. That's very handy to have in the back pocket. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I wanted to ask about that idea of being in the public eye. Like, are you concerned about either like your daughters being too much in the public eye or maybe wanting to be in the public eye too much? So it's interesting. As I said, uh, we have fraternal twins and one of them takes after me very strongly and the other one takes after my wife very strongly, even in terms of their appearance, um, in terms of their likes and dislikes okay. for food. Um, and one of them is just the spitting image of me when I was a little kid, which was hmm. very attention seeking and, <laughs> and very uh, upset when you get attention or laughs for something that you were not trying to get a laugh for. You know how uh, when, when a kid will do something and the whole room will laugh and then the kid will start to cry right. because they weren't they weren't expecting to be laughed at. Um, one of them is very, very much like that. Hmm. And the other one is very shy, uh, very camera shy. And so until they were about three or four, uh, I, I regularly posted pictures of them on social media and even on Twitter, um, not pictures of them on Twitter, but I'll regularly, you know, write a funny anecdote about something that they said or something that we did together. Uh, and then after they turned four, I made a conscious effort to go, I'm not going to put so much up. I think maybe only a handful of times a year I post something where they're visible in a picture. But we've also kind of started, and I think I'm better about this than my wife is. We, we also are very clear about when we're taking a picture with the family or we're taking a picture or a video of, of what they're doing, uh, what that video is for and where we're going to share it. So if we're going to send mm. it to grandma... They have different categories. They have if they're, they're doing something that it's okay if you send that picture or video to grandma, but not if you put it where everyone can see it. And so right. kind of give them a little bit of knowledge and a little bit of um, uh, power to make their own choices about mm. what they want to share with people who aren't just in the immediate family. Yeah, that sounds um, 
it's such a web. I mean, well, yeah. internet, forgive the pun, but it's, <laughs> it's a massive web, you know. Yeah. It, it goes out and it sticks and you're not sure um, who's got access to it in the end and it's forever yeah. and like all of the problems that everyone talks about. And uh, Mark and I have talked about this a lot. I've had experiences where someone came up to me and said, oh, I'm a fan of your daughter's. Because they'd seen oh, that's the pictures of my daughters on Instagram. Yeah, yeah. And and I think I, I made a video a while back about the idea of um, I would post pictures of my, my kids every once in a while. I think there was one one set of pictures that I put. We were all washing my car and my, my girls were wearing bathing suits washing the car. And I got like five or six comments from Japanese women on these posts where they use the word sexy to describe my daughters. And the word sexy in Japanese, they they use it to mean kind of like mature or... Uh, hmm. looking more adult and it doesn't have a specifically sexual connotation. They have a band of, uh, called sexy zone that I think it's, it's 13 year old boys. Mm -hmm. They've grown up now, but when they launched, they were 13 year old boys and their band was called sexy zone. Um, <laughs> but in English I hear sexy. And the only thing that that means to me is something that reminds you of sex or something that makes you feel sexual. And hmm. I do not want that word applied to my children. And, For sure. and so I actually got into the comments and ended up making a video about kind of like how you should be careful when you're using what you think is a word that has certain connotations in Japanese and, and how it has different connotations in English. Mm. But but I, I do think um, just overall, the Internet is not a good place to have your children not a good place for people to have <laughs> access to your children. And moving forward, I do want to limit it as much as possible. Yeah, for sure. Something that sort of struck me um, just a few weeks ago in thinking about this is if someone had a social media account that I was regularly featured on, but that I had not consented to and that I wasn't aware of, I would be furious about that. Right. And uh, right. I would want to know what's going on. And then eventually, I guess, you know, we have to remember our kids will be adults and in that position of like, wow, someone held a social media account. You know, it's your parents. Yeah. So you yeah. have that nice familial connection, but it's still in principle kind of the same mm. thing. So yeah. just almost out of respect for the kid, I, I'm <laughs> really trying to steer clear of it like you're talking about and just be very careful about um, spreading the sort of personal photos, info and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, since we're kind of taking steps back before we finish up, there was something in terms of the language that we were talking about. And I think I mm. said I said I, I had like two things that I was conscious of and I only got to the first one. But the mm. The second thing in terms of getting your kids to learn English and sticking with English for me is that from a very, very young age, we always put a really clear focus on the fact that it's a tool that gets you stuff. It's not just something you're learning for the sake of learning it. It's you study mm. English, you understand English, and there are all these benefits that come that come with it. So if we speak Japanese and English, then we understand twice as many cartoons if you know you, you learn to write your letters, then you can write a letter to grandma. And when you write a letter to grandma, she's going to write you a letter back and you're going to get something in the mail. And it's always mm -hmm. been kind of a very conscious framing to my children of, well, why are we doing two languages? Because right. we're lucky enough that we can understand two languages and we get all of these benefits. If you didn't speak English, you wouldn't have made this friend. If you weren't able to read and write English, you wouldn't have understood this thing. And it's this really conscious linking mm. to the practical benefits of it that one of the things that makes me the happiest is when I hear them say of their own accord that, you know, they're lucky that they speak English because they were able to do more stuff because of it. Yeah, that's a really good point. I like that. 
Yeah, excellent. Um, it's the carrots, you know, keep something yeah. out there that they can strive for that benefits them as well yeah. and make it part of the education. Oh, and a big, a big carrot is the idea that when we're out in public, we can have a secret conversation that most of the people around us can't understand. <laughs> yeah. That crossed my mind earlier. Do yeah. they clue in among themselves, just between the two of them? Do they clue in that they've got a secret language at their disposal all the time? Oh, yeah, yeah. We've played that up a lot. And to the point where to the point where there's there's been a couple of times where I've had to I've had to like warn them ahead of time. I'm like this person that we're about to talk to. They speak English. So a, so, so a, let's yeah. let's use our English with them and practice our English. And b, don't say anything negative. <laughs> yeah, that's good wow. to warn them ahead of time. Yeah. One of the one of the funniest ones was um, they got in the habit of when they saw somebody scary, somebody that they weren't used to seeing. I think for a long time, when they were three or four, they they were scared of of larger men with beards. And so they'd see somebody with a beard and they'd go, scary, scary. And a couple of times it happened where the Japanese person understood enough English to understand that the girls were calling them scary. And <laughs> it was always it was always a joke. It was always something funny. But at one point I said to them, like, you know, you can't tell if somebody's nice or not by how they look. And most of the people who are talking to us are always going to be our friends. So, you know, just because somebody you're not supposed to say someone's scary in front of them. And the next time, the next time we ran into some big guy who had a beard, as soon as they walked up, one of the girls looked at the other one and went, "Remember, you're not supposed to say that they're scary." She's <laughs> <laughs> saying the quiet part loud. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Amazing. Yeah, that's excellent. Um, it's been like it's been so great to hear your take on it uh, as somebody with uh, six years or twelve years combined experience yeah. under your belt there. And Mark and I are just like wading into it now. Yeah. Um, mm. And uh, I mentioned this to Mark before, actually. The first time I was exposed to the world of Bobby Judo was actually on our uh, friend's podcast, Ishikawa Summit to See. And I was, you know, about a year late to the party on that. I was trying to catch up. So I went back to their first episodes and I was listening at like 1.5 speed. Yeah. And I got through several episodes like that. And then your episode <laughs> when they were interviewing you and you started talking about your kids, I was like, oh, this is so relevant about language in the household and the sort of mm. educational stuff and child rearing. That's the moment when I took their podcast down to <laughs> the 1x speed. And now I feel like I got the full force. Like, um, yeah. uh, So it's been very interesting to hear um, to hear you talk about it. And I've been listening to Ishikawa Summit to see on 1x speed ever since. So oh, they owe that all I, to you. I always listen on 1x speed. Ishikawa Summit to see is my absolute favorite podcast when I'm on a commute and I want to make the commute feel longer. <laughs> well, now their episodes are like an hour and a half. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we've mentioned them a lot because we already talked about large men with beards who are scary. So, um, yeah. Ishikawa Summit to see got a lot of play in this episode. Good but, guys. um, yes. Yeah, I've been looking forward to this chat for a long time since I, you know, heard you months ago on that one. And uh, it was very educational for me. So mm. thank you very much. Oh, it was my pleasure. And are you guys, so you're planning on doing this long term then as you start your fatherhood journeys, you'll, you'll continue updating through the podcast. That's the plan. Yeah. yeah. No, no end date in mind, just yeah. kind of. Well, See as somebody who's who's further down the road with experience with both podcasting and fatherhood, um, doing both at the same time is something that uh, your wives are just going to really appreciate. They're going to love <laughs> that you're doing that. 
That's good news. Yeah, yeah, something to look forward to. <laughs> yeah. The good thing now is that actually the podcast is like, oh, we need content to let me read several chapters of what to expect when you're expecting. Oh, and then good, my good, wife good. sees me deep in yeah. the book and it's like uh, cookie points. So it works out yeah. well. Uh, as of now, yeah. that's worked for a couple months anyway. Unless you've got anything else, Mark, I think... No, no. Thank you very much, Bobby, for joining us today and answering all of our questions. Been really helpful. Yeah, we really appreciate it, man. Glad to get the invite. Thank you so much. Let's get into some Japanese of the day. Yes, the Japanese of the day is very relevant to me in in week two of having a baby. We're talking about different types of milk. Um, you might know the Japanese for milk that you would buy at the store, which is gyunyu. If you break mm. down the kanji, of course, the gyu means cow. So, of mm. course, you're getting cow's milk when you shop at the store. That also means that gyunyu would not be applicable to a mother's breast milk because there's no cow involved. Mm. So, uh, breast milk is bonyu, and mm. uh, that bo at the beginning is the character for mother. So it just literally means mother's milk, bonyu. Hmm. The word for breastfeeding is junyu. And of course, the verb then is junyu suru. And one more is formula, kona miruku. And miruku is, of course, milk. And then kona means powder, or it could mean sand, like a little particulate oh. sort of thing. So kona miruku is uh, what they use for that. So mm. these are very useful across the board. Bonyu is the breast milk. Junyu is breastfeeding. And kona miruku is milk formula. It's the Japanese of the day. I think all we've got left in the chamber here are a few dad jokes. Yes, we do. Do you want to go first or would you like me to take the lead on these? Um, well, let's let's exchange. I've got two chess dad jokes for you here. Okay, um, I've got three. Oh, okay, well then, by all means, mathematically, you should start off. Okay, uh, this one is uh, right up your alley, I think. What do you call a hobbit eating at a KFC? Mm. I'm from Kentucky, so the KFC <laughs> registers. I don't know anything about hobbits or Lord of the Rings. Ah, oh, perfect. Uh, let me think. I want to use the word Shire. Uh, nope, I got no idea. Lord of the Wings. Lord of the Wings. Okay, <laughs> perfect. Good, good, good. Makes okay. absolute sense. That's right. What do you got for me? Uh, this is a chess joke. It's not like a QA, you know, you can't think about it and answer. It's just like a sentence. Okay. Um, on the weekend, I like to play chess with elderly men in the park, but it's becoming increasingly more difficult to find exactly 32 of them. <laughs> anyway, just a bizarre, <laughs> bizarre life where you gather 32 old men. Just and, to have this uh, image of you out there moving yeah. Oji-san around. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's no All shortage right. in Japan, though. That's true. That's true. <laughs> okay. What do you call a gangster hobbit? Mm. Let me preface this by saying I saw the first Lord of the Rings when it came out. I saw the second one in the theater, but I fell asleep halfway through it. You fell asleep? 
Yeah, it was the only time I've fallen asleep in a theater. And then I thought, I don't know what happened in the second one. I'm not going to see the third one. And then The Hobbit came out with the guy, Martin Freeman, from The the Office. Right. And um, But I don't know anything about Hobbits or whatever. So I just, I've steered clear of Lord of the Rings for my whole life. Okay, well, it's a, it's a gangster <laughs> Hobbit. Yes. A gangster Hobbit. Uh, I got no idea. Yellow Swaggins. <laughs> Yolo Swaggins. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like it's two areas of culture that I don't know anything about, and you fused them into something that makes no sense to me. I thought you might get that because of your love for Nicki Minaj. Yeah, I was trying to think of a Nicki Minaj <laughs> tie-in, but I couldn't make Minaj and Baggins work out together, so I yeah. abandoned ship. Okay, All your right. turn. Another chess joke here. I taught my dog to play chess, but he's pretty dumb. Uh, so I still managed to beat him two out of three games. <laughs> All right, that's my. It's more of a it chess. Sounds like me versus my dog. <laughs> <laughs> okay, last and, one uh, here. Yeah. You might get. You might get this one. What do you call a movie about a gangster hobbit? So the gangster hobbits YOLO swaggins. <laughs> As we've established, yes. <laughs> yeah, and a movie about YOLO swaggins. Gosh, YOLO. I don't know. Just I'm drawing a total blank. YOLO Swaggins and the Fellowship of the Bling. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> that makes sense. I was thinking YOLO Swaggins and the Chamber of Secrets or something, but I realized I was crossing merging all of your franchises together. Yeah, and I gave up on it. That's drawn us to another hilarious and exciting conclusion. Yes of another J-Pops episode. Thanks to everyone for listening. We hope this week's episode was informative and interesting. If you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us either on Twitter at J-Pops Podcast or by email at info at thejpops.com. And we will talk to you next time. See ya. Bye-bye.